So we'll go ahead and get, get started. It's really good to see you guys. Let's turn to the book of Luke. Um, one of the wonderful blessings about teaching expositionally, that's a big fancy word, but does anybody know what it means to be expositional, expositional teaching or expositional preaching? Does anybody it's know what I mean? Exposing it. Exposing it, good. That, right yeah, out of the yep, book. That's the root word. Um, well, most of y'all actually go to uh, Independent Press downtown. A lot of y'all do, right? Well, Independent Terry and all of the pastors at Independent Prez are all expositional preachers. What it means is, is they take the Bible, they open the Bible up, and they teach verse by verse through the Bible. So there's different types of preaching and teaching. There can be topical teaching like, well, what must I do to be saved? And then we can talk about that topic and open up the Scriptures and go all over the Scriptures and try to find different verses to help us understand what it means to be, how do we get saved? Or we can do expositionally, which means that we simply start with one verse and go verse by verse through a passage of Scripture to learn. Um, I prefer expositional preaching, and this is why. So I haven't seen you guys in a month. But for the last three years of working with you, we've been working through the life of Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. Y'all remember how we've been doing that? We've been going Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And, uh, and learning about the life of Jesus chronologically as he lived out his life. And so what happens is, if I was doing topical preaching, I'd have to go back and scratch my head and think about where were we at. But now all I had to do was go back and look. My last lesson, uh, last time together, was in Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 21. And today we're going to pick it up and go to Luke chapter 13, and we're going to pick up right there and continue to go. So it's a way for me to be able to stay on track. And what am I using for the tracks? The Bible. The Bible. <laughs> and that's really important because a lot of churches, if you go to a lot of churches, a lot of churches do teach very topically. Um, I've, I've been uh, audience to several sermons here in the last couple months where a preacher would come in, he would read a, a verse of Scripture, and then he would talk about something completely other than that Scripture, mainly himself, for the next 30 or 45 minutes. Uh, you yeah. see? So we want to use the Bible as our tracks. When you do your study, and that's a very good way to study expositionally, line by line, pretext by pretext, instead of uh, taking your Bible and opening it up and throwing a dart and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to read and meditate on today. A lot of people do study that way. They just open up the Bible and say, okay, God, speak to me. But God is a, a God of order, and there's nothing in the world wrong. And, and matter of fact, it's my preferred method is to teach or to preach expositionally through through, through the verses. And so today we're going to do that. Let me um, turn and catch up with you guys. We're going to be, like I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through uh, 35. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 35. I'm going to read that for us. All right. Uh, yep, that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. The narrow door. All right. So Luke chapter 13 and verses 22 through 35. If you want to follow along with me in your Bibles, that would be fantastic. So as Jesus was passing through one village and uh, after another, he was teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin standing outside and knocking on the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he then will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin saying, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And yet he will say, I do not know where you are from. Leave me, depart from me, you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away and leave this place, because Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must go on my journey today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem." Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house has left you desolate and I say unto you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, so let's go ahead and get back to the beginning, and we're going to go line by line through this text and kind of see what we can learn. Number one, Jesus is passing through the cities and villages, and what is he doing? What does it say he's doing? Healing. Healing people? Good. Yeah, but that's not what this said. What does it say? It does say that in a few verses down from this, but what does this say he's doing? Teaching. He's teaching. Why? Because salvation comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the... Word of God, all right? And so it's very important for us to sit under proper teaching. It's very important for us to sit under proper teaching. Um, we were just talking there just a minute ago uh, about uh, uh, Mr. Farrakhan, right? Very persuasive Muslim speaker. Well, the reality is is that he is very persuasive and he does teach. But is he teaching the things of God? That's the question we have to ask. And so it's very easy for us to fall under the wrong types of teachings and to be led astray off of the path. But Jesus is going through and he's teaching. Now someone's going to ask him a question. And oftentimes when people ask questions, right, they ask the wrong questions. But this is a pretty good question. And not only is it a good question, but he's the person asking this question is coming to the right source, is he not? We should always carry our questions to the Word of God. That's where the answers are found, right? It would be very easy for the, the, the 10 of us here in this room, or 12, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 11 of us in this room, to sit around for the next 30 minutes and just talk about what we think about this and that and to, to question one another and to try to figure out what we know. But that's not what we do in this class, is it? We're going to get into the Scriptures and we're going to see how Jesus answered these questions. And what he said is this. He says, how few are there being saved? Well, what does that mean? Well, the title of our lesson today, right? The title of our lesson is, 
is that this is a narrow door. What does it mean when something's narrow? Small. It's small, right? And all through the scriptures, one of the themes of scripture is the remnant or the few. Remains. Right? The few who make it. So not only is there a focus on the few who make it, but the many who don't. And one of the things I want you to have in your mind as we go through this class today, I want you to remember the story of Noah's Ark. Eight people survived a judgment from God. The entire millions and billions of people that were on the earth at that time died. Only eight survived. That's not a lot. Eight. That's only a few, isn't it? Yeah. Think about that. A fraction. Think about they, that. They all couldn't have been corrupted, could they? Besides those mm-hmm. eight. The, the rest whole. went to God who died. Well, the Bible said they laughed at Noah. And told him to blow. Noah preached the kingdom and said, come help me build this ark. Get on. God's going to destroy the world. And they laughed. And his family. So what you'll find is is that as the kingdom is proclaimed, as the message of the gospel is proclaimed, as Jesus is proclaimed, there's only a few that really hear. There's only a few that hear. Many Actually, let me put it this way. Many hear, few listen. There's a big difference in hearing and listening. And what did, it, what did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. My sheep know what? My voice. My voice. And what do they do when the shepherd calls? They come. they come. So who is this few people? Who is this remnant? Who are these ones that are saved? The ones that hear the shepherd's voice and come. What makes you a sheep? The new birth. You're a child of God because God saves you. But if you are a child of God, if you are his sheep, you come when he calls. So one of the clearest indications that you are a part of the few is your willingness to hear, hear, listen, and what? Obey. All right? Obedience is an expression of love. And how often do we hear in God's word, thou shalt not do this, and we go right out and do it. Right? Right? How many of the abominations mentioned in the Bible are now embraced by the world and the, around us today? Things that God says make him want to puke. An abomination is something that is a damnable offense. It is something that God will throw you into hell for for eternity. And how much of our modern society today is literally embracing the very things that God says are abomination? Yeah. But what we're going to learn here today, guys, as we read through this is a lot of the very people that think they are the few are actually the many. Remember, Jesus is coming into the villages. We, last time we were together, we, he was teaching in a synagogue. A synagogue was an organized uh, place of, of religious people meeting together, right? It was a place where people come together and read the scriptures and, and, and fellowship together. And these people wore the right suits. They talked the right talk. They, they outwardly, externally looked like they walked the right walk. By Congress. 
right? But, but in reality, their hearts were far from God. The very people that thought they were God's people were actually the very people that he's going to say in a few minutes, depart from me, I don't know where you're from. Alright, so, the man asks, he says, are there such a few to be saved? Now, watch what Jesus says next. Because this can confuse us. It confused me when I first read it. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Alright? So, the first thing he says is, you need to strive to enter. What does it mean to strive? Try hard. Okay, good. That's what we're doing. Yeah, Pray. Uh, striving could be to pray. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, that's right. It means the, the hard work, labor, toil. Struggle. Struggle to enter into this narrow door. Now, what does that sound like? My 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 yeah, my buddy, my Catholic buddy down the table just nailed it, right? <laughs> you gotta work. You can't just say you have. It's, you gotta work to get into the kingdom, right? Uh, Michael's my dear brother. He is. A, he's Catholic, and me and him, I, I love him, and I, I chide him at times because in the Catholic faith, do the, do the Catholics believe that you have to have faith to go to heaven? Faith. Faith. Yeah, yeah, of course you do. The Catholics believe that, but. All of the world religions say, yeah, you have to have faith, but you also have to have works. And one of the things that Paul, one of the things that Jesus, one of the things that the Word of God teaches us is that it's faith alone that gets us to heaven. Alright? What do I mean by that? Jesus died on a cross to save His people. He was buried three days later. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the Father and the Son have sent the Holy Spirit back down to the earth to confirm and to, cons- and to seal those that He died to save. Well, how do we find out about Jesus? How do we find out about the Holy Spirit? How do we find out about God? Through the Word of God. So what happens is the Word of God is proclaimed to the masses, to the many. And there are a few that the Holy Spirit opens their heart and helps them to understand. And what do they believe? They believe that Jesus died on the cross for them. They believe that Jesus was buried in the grave. They believe that Jesus physically in a physical body arose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of his Father right now waiting for his work to be completed in the Holy Spirit and through the people of God. Because what we do now is we go out and share that same promise with other people and those people believe. But watch. My faith is based on what Jesus did and what Jesus is doing for me. That's what my faith is based on. My faith has to be something that is true or it's no good. I can stand on the top of a ten-story building and believe with all of my heart that I can fly. I can have so much faith that I believe I can fly that I jump off the building. But the reality is I'm going to fall ten stories and die. Why? Because gravity don't care what I think. Gravity cares about it working. I have to have faith in things that are true. And the greatest truth is that Jesus died to save people Himself. And those who believe on Him and believe on what He has done are saved. So you see? So my salvation is based on my faith in what Jesus has done. So now, who am I depending on to get me to heaven? 
Jesus. Jesus. Jesus alone. But watch this. But like we were talking about this in the sermon last Sunday. If you want to imagine, your faith is like a hand that reaches out. And it is God who puts salvation into that hand. You have done nothing but receive it. But for every single child of God who received that faith and whose heart has changed, there is now going to be a desire in them to love God and love others. And what is the greatest way to love God and others? To take the very gift that He has given you and do what? Use that same hand to share it with others. And what does it look like to share that with others? You work. You see? What does it look like to share that faith with others? You work. You see? That, that's how it works. So it's not my works that save me, but my works are definitely a proof that I am saved. Right. Now, are there people that do good things that are not saved? Yeah. Yes. All the yes. But they are not pleasing to God. Huh? Because they are not done in faith. See, the one who receives God's faith, the one who receives God's salvation, turns around and shares that with others. Why? So that God can be glorified. The unsaved person who's doing good things is doing it for what? For glory for themselves. Or, watch this, so that they can get to heaven on what they're doing. Yeah, but that might that might be deceiving to the person receiving the good works. If they're not doing it out of faith through Christ, I mean, the other people aren't grown enough in Christianity. That might be deceiving. They're very deceiving. What, who do you think Jesus is facing right here? Jesus is facing a bunch of people that are clothed in religion and clothed in good works. But. You see what happens when Jesus comes and confronts them with the truth? The fakes are exposed and hate Him and want to kill Him. And the true sheep do what? Hear Him and follow Him. Yes, it is very confusing. Wasn't He talking about the Pharisees in this? Yes. Yeah. Well, He's he's talking about... There's several different things He's talking about here, uh, Mike, and that's a very good question. I want you to look with me really quickly. Let's go back and um, look at a couple of passages of Scripture. I want to turn back to the Old Testament and look at the book of Ezekiel. Oh, Lord. All right. Where's that by? Yeah. Uh, Joel, Amos, Umbadi- it's, it's before the Minor Prophets. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, David. It's right before David. And Ezekiel. Uh, Ecclesiastes? Uh, after. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. It's after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentation. After Isaiah. Almost to the end. Ezekiel what? Ezekiel 17. And we're going to look at verses 22 through 24. Ezekiel 17, 22 through 44. 22 through 34. All right. And this is what it says. This is what the Lord God says. I will take a sprig... From the lofty top of a cedar and set it out, I will break off the top from among young twigs and tenders among, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. And on that high mountain of Israel, I will plant it so that it may bring forth branches and bear fruit. 
and become a stately cedar, and the birds of every kind will nest under it, and they will nest in the shade of the branches, and the tree of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will perform it. Now what Ezekiel is prophesying here is the establishing of the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is he's going to take a branch and plant it on a high mountain. Now in the Bible, Jesus is known as the branch. Right? I am the branch. I, uh, you are the vine. I, uh, I am the vine. You are the branches. Right? Uh, and you abide in me and you will bear much fruit. So what he's saying is this branch is going to be planted on a high hill, high hill in Jerusalem. And then it is going to be broadcast all over. Okay? And it's going to, it's going to not work the way that the world works because it's going to make the green tree dry and the dry tree green. You see, the kingdom of God works in, not in harmony with the way that the world, this world works. It works just the opposite. And so what he's doing is he's talking about establishing his kingdom. So Mike asked, well, who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to the Pharisees? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the whole crowd. But one of the problems that the Jewish people in these passages, now there's nothing wrong with Jewish people, but anybody who rejects Jesus, there's something wrong with them. And this group, these Jews, as we're studying here today, are the ones that are rejecting their Messiah. And so in their mind... One of the reasons that they're going to inherit the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, is because they're Abraham's kids. They have physical lineage to Abraham. That makes them special above all the rest of the world. But see, it's not the physical children of Abraham that are sons of God. It's the spiritual children that are Abraham. And one of the things that the the Jewish people have forgotten is, is that in the Old Testament... There are many passages that remind us that God is going to have a people that is going to be way outside of just the people of Jerusalem, just the people, right? They're going to be from, from all of the world. We'll see that in a few minutes. We're going to look at a passage where it talks about that. But Jesus is speaking to these people, and what he's saying to them is there's only a few people going to be saved, and just because you're Jewish, or just because you're a Pharisee, or just because you're the leader of the synagogue, or just because you're a, a teacher or a pastor, or just because you uh, walk around and act religious, that's not what makes you a child of God. And it's going to irritate the Pharisees and, and the Jews. Why? Because they have the title. They have the lineage. We've got it all. But they don't have Jesus. And that's the problem. They have works. Oh, we got the laws. We got the Ten Commandments. We got the Levitical priesthood. We have the temple. It's only here that you can come and sacrifice to the true God. In reality, when God comes in the flesh and stands before them, what do they do to Him? They reject Him. Why? Because they had been living their whole lives trying to establish a righteousness of their own instead of receiving the righteousness of God. And sharing it with others, making it about others and God. So, back to that loop. So again, as we're reading through this whole text today, I want you to remember that Jesus has come. He's that branch that is being planted there, and that a kingdom is going to be established. And many of the very trees that look the greenest are actually the driest. 
And many dry trees are actually the trees that are going to be green. Right? How many of you in this room can give thanks to God for the way that He's pulled you out of an old lifestyle and gave you a new fruitful lifestyle? Yeah. Amen. You see, he, what, he, what has He done? He's taken things that the world sees as worthless and made them His very treasures. That means I'm a treasure? Yes, you are a treasure. <laughs> yeah. Look, you're, you're, you're his bride. Right? You're his bride. All right, so let's get back over back to Luke now and kind of get through a couple more texts here, uh, more passages. So Luke chapter 13, and we just saw. So we've talked about there's just a few being saved. And he what he says is strive to enter. So what does he mean by that? Try. Try. Prove that your salvation is what you say it is. Love God and love others. Where's that at? Uh, Verse 24. Luke 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I will tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So, So, strive. So, he's not saying that our works get us to heaven, but if we're going to heaven, we'll work. Our strivings will be obvious to us and to others. Now, again, what uh, what did you say that the word strive means? You hear that word? You mean um, try hard, make it a, make hard labor, hard toil. You see, to live in the kingdom of God and to walk with God is not easy, right? It forces me to to put my computer mouse down and stop going to certain places on the internet. It forces me to stop focusing on my my sports idols and to focus on church on Sunday. It forces me to love other people instead of myself. And that is a striving in itself, is it not? Yeah. Is it not hard not to love yourself? Oh, it's very, <laughs> right? hard. Yeah. It's very difficult. <laughs> we, we are our greatest idol. Oh, yes, we right? are. Of all of the things in the world that we will worship besides God, I is the biggest one of all. All right. Idol starts with I, doesn't it? Yeah. That's not that's not uh, unintentional. And so think about it. for all of us in this room, every one of us in this room has struggled at some time um, with some type of addictions. And addiction is simply an indulgence in self. That's what it is. It's trying to find the happiness within yourself. And why does that, why does addiction leave you empty? Because you're seeking your hope in self instead of God, right? Now, what did God say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And how many of us can attest to the fact that in addiction and and living in lust, living in sin and the bondage of sin, the last person in the world we're concerned about is God. The second last person we're concerned about is anybody that's going to get in my way of me doing what I want to do. And then myself. And and we've been taught in in, in addiction uh, psychology that that uh, the reason that we're destroying right ourselves is because we hate ourselves. No, that's not true. We love, we love ourselves. The problem is we hate the one in whose image we have been created. And so in rebellion, we're going to destroy that image. You see how that works? That's pretty deep. We create, we're created in God's image, and it's not we that we hate, it's God. So I'm going to destroy the image maker. 
by destroying his image. Right, hold on. So you tell us everybody who's an addict or someone who's struggling with addiction, they hate God. I I don't know about that. Okay, you, I'll let you I, think about that. I could be wrong, but I don't know about that. I'm just, they just. I think it's hard to twist your mind around. When we use and we're addicted, we're rebelling against what God wants us well, to do. Well, addiction means you struggle. It simply means you you struggle with something. That, 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 that doesn't make, make a person like. Uh, 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 All right, I'm I'm gonna leave that with you to think about. But you know, I'm gonna leave that with you to think about. Okay. One thing about it, you know, a lot of people don't even know about God. Well, that's but does the scripture attest to that? Well, I know you say he's, you're, you're built with an image of him in you. I don't say that. The Bible does. Well, I, and the right. Bible says that there is none without excuse. There, nobody yeah. has an excuse. We are all inexcusable. Because the natural man balls his fist up at God and said, I don't believe in God, and I hate him. This guy tells you, no, but you don't That's what the natural man says. I don't believe in God, and I hate him. If he's a fairy tale like Santa Claus, you don't hate him. The reason we hate him is because deep down inside of all of us, we were created in his image, and we're born with an awareness of who he is. Now, we might not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but we are definitely, any atheist in the world is definitely aware that there's something bigger than them controlling things. They, and they'll turn their, they'll grit their teeth and ball their fists up and reject that. But the simple act of gritting their teeth and balling up their fists and hating it is showing that they're aware it's there. See how that works? Okay. All right. So verse 25. Um, so or verse 24, one last thing in 24. Look what he says. There are many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Right? We've been taught all of our lives that it's our free will choice to choose God. But what he's saying right here, there's some people that's going to want to enter the kingdom of God, but they're not going to be able. What's the difference in may and can? Right? Remember when you were in school and the teacher taught you that lesson? Can, can I go to the bathroom? I don't know. Can you? It's not the ability, but the what? Permission, Permission to do it. So it's judgment. His judgment. His judgment. His judgment on those who rebel against him literally keeps them from being able to come in. They they stop up the way the Bible says it. They stop up their ears and ball at their fist to God. Ah la 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 la. I can't hear you. No, but in the end, even though they you, you work hard, it's still His judgment. Yes, because instead of depending on Him, they, their work was depending on themselves. They were doing it to glorify themselves, not God. But what He's saying is they can't come. And you say how? Well, that's such a mean mean thing how could God be so mean somebody wants to enter into the kingdom and he don't let them they're not able but the reality is they don't want to enter into God's kingdom they want to enter into their kingdom where they're God where they rule and reign they want to call the shots they want to be the ones that makes the rules so that's like saying uh, I love God about one hour a week yeah okay yeah yeah so with their mouth, they honor Him, but in their hearts, they're far from Him. So the reason that they're not able to come is because they don't have a heart that loves God. Who gives us a heart to love Him? Christ. God. God is the one that gives us a heart to love Him. So the reason they cannot come is because they're not able. Why? Because they don't have a heart that's right with God. 
Now look what he says in the next verse. Verse 25. Right? Here's another reason why they don't come. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, who's the head of the house? Yeah. Our Father who art in heaven, right? So the, the, the house would be the kingdom of God, right? And what does he do? He shuts the door and they keep knocking saying, Lord, Lord, open up. And he will answer and say, I do not know where you're from. So, they call him Lord. But what does Jesus say in another passage? He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that and do that? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know who you are. So not only on judgment day does he tell them, I don't know you. And that knowing is an intimate knowledge. Because he doesn't know their heart because their heart doesn't know. Now God knows all people, doesn't he? He created us. And he knows their hearts. The knowledge that he's talking about when he says, depart from me, I never knew you, is a a picture of uh, a spiritual intimacy that only the father has with his children. Right? You know your neighbor's kids. But you don't know them like you know your kids. Because you birthed your kid, you see. There's an intimacy there. It's the same intimacy between a husband and a wife, right? Michael's more than happy for me to know his wife as a friend, but if I were to know her in a biblical way, then I would have committed adultery and he's going to want to shoot me. You understand? Because they have an intimate bond. They have an intimate bond that's not to be broken. And the beauty of that is, is that God, when he says, I know you, it means that you are his. You belong to him. You're a member of the family. And if a kid comes up, even after curfew, and knocks on the door and says, Dad, please let me in now. You might be let in and get put on restriction, or you might get a beating, or you might get chewed out. But he's going to open the door and let you in. You see? But if just some stranger comes up to your house in the middle of the night and knocks on the door and says, Hey, let me in. What are you going to say? I don't know who you are. Get away from me. And that's what the picture, that's what he's showing us here. Then the only ones that are going to enter into that narrow door are the ones that are invited in. And why are they invited in? Because of their family. They're of the inheritance. They're allowed in. So he says, Lord, open up to us. And he will say, I do not know where you're from. Then you will start saying, but we ate and drank in your presence and taught in your streets. Now, when I hear that you ate and drank in my presence, I mean to think at my church, and I think it, I think at most of the Presbyterian, at our church, we, um, we have communion every Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of churches do it every Sunday. I think Grace does it every Sunday morning and, and every Mid-week. first Sunday, yeah. and then every Sunday night. They do it every Sunday no, night. I don't do it every Sunday night. Oh, you don't? I don't think they do. I think they do it uh, once a month. Y'all do it once a month at your church? Like middle. And then the first Sunday of the month. In the morning. And, and then we have one in the afternoon. And one in the afternoon? Okay, at our church we do it We do it every Sunday. And what is it? Well, remember that communion is a preaching of the gospel. That Christ's body was broke for you and His blood was poured out for you. And so it's a picture of the gospel being presented. And who is allowed to come to the table and take? All of those who have received Him and believe Him. Are we perfect? No. Right? Jehovah's Witnesses have communion every week. Uh, at their churches, at their uh, churches, but nobody t- partakes because they believe the only person that's allowed to partake is somebody who's perfect, right? They they offer it, but nobody ever takes it. What, what offer? Right? And what a symbol that is of the gospel being offered and nobody receiving it, right? 
So the picture of the gospel, the, the communion is a proclamation of the gospel. And who is it offered to? All of those who will receive him, to all of those who well, believe him. But they do fence the table, and, and you often say, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know, you know. They do fence the table, and what do they say? Because communion is a way for you to profess before God and neighbor that you are in a right relationship with him. And even if I'm a child of God, if I'm, if I'm embracing uh, known sin, mm-hmm. let's just say I'm having an adulterous affair with my neighbor, affair with my neighbor and nobody in my church knows it who does know it god and me if i get up and go down and take communion when i'm living in and it's again it's not just sin because i guarantee you while you sit in the church service your mind wanders and you think about things like you sin in your mind all the time you're always sinning that's the whole but what he's but the difference in a child of god and a child and someone who is not a child of god is the child of God struggles with their sin nature. Like there's a constant fight going on. So that's a human nature. Right? No, that's not human nature. Human right. nature. Well, there's a really well, prayer so that my mind doesn't so, wander. I try to say exactly in my yeah. mind what the preacher so, is so, th- so what happens is Sometimes when a works. person is, even a child of God, can a, a child of God get caught up in an adulterous affair? Sure. Yes. Yeah, let's look at David. It's a perfect example. All right? David was an adulterer and a murderer. He killed the husband to cover up the fact that he had slept with the husband's wife. But God forgave him for it. Now, he, he suffered the rest of his life for those decisions he made. Just like some of us in this, well, all of us in this room, you're going to struggle the rest of your life with choices that you made in the past. God's not going to take away those struggles. But he's going to give you the strength to walk through them. And not only that, if that God is, better, yeah, if God is actually at work in you, then your desires are going to be, be more towards your future than your past. You see, are you going to still struggle with past thoughts? Yes. yes. Are you going to still struggle with things that you did in the past? Yes. Well, sometimes will those things catch up with you and bite you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many think about somebody who's uh, done something really terrible and then they get saved and then the law comes and goes and locks them up? <laughs> they're still paying for something that they've done physically, but they will never answer for that with God because it's under the blood of Christ. But the child of God has come to the realization that the eternal things are way more important than right. the, that, the physical things. And not only that, the child of God is struggling with their sin. <clears throat> There's not a man in this room, I guarantee you, I don't care if you're 80, that doesn't still struggle with lust. I thought when I got to a certain age that all of those desires would just go away and I wouldn't have to deal with that anymore. And the reality is I struggle with it every day. The difference in me today and the difference in me 20 years ago is back then I embraced those desires. Now I fight with them and it grieves me when I have them. You see the difference? I'm not perfect and I struggle every day with those kind of things. But when I go before the table in front of the rest of my fellow uh, family in the front of the rest of my family what I'm saying is I'm a child who struggles but Christ's body has been broken for me and his blood has been shed for me to cover these sins and I'm coming before you and before my God to give thanks to him for what he's done for me and the reason we do it every week at our church is because we think it's a time where we come together and reflect on the things that we've struggled with in the past week and there have been times in my Christian life and just in the last few months where I really was found myself embracing a sinful something and I didn't go. I didn't go before the table because I, did, I knew that my heart wasn't right at that time. 
You see? So it's a, it's a chance every day to reflect on what that blood and what that body means to me. Now, and my, my Catholic friends, y'all actually believe that it it enhances your spirit. Like, in other words, going forward and taking that breath, it actually, the mass, the, the changing of that bread and that wine into the true body and blood of Christ actually purifies me as I eat it and drink it. Is that true? true? Well, actually, I was taught that um, you don't go to communion until, first off, you've gone to confession and confessed your sins. Right. So unless you're clean. Right. Otherwise, you don't go. That's exactly right. Right. So what you're doing is, is you're going to an earthly priest who will then intercede with you with the high priest. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's what you believe, mm-hmm. and and so in the book of Hebrews it tells us we now have a high. So the problem with your priest is that he's a man, and every twenty years they change the priest, don't they? Why? Because they usually die, like a priest dies, and then they replace one another priest, or they get caught doing something bad, and they replace. Them. We're we're human beings, all of us. The Bible teaches us that you now have a high priest in Christ that you go to. And you don't need a man, a, a, a man, a son of Adam to intercede with you for with God. That Christ is the man that you go to now to intercede. He is your high priest. So, uh, again, I, I, I don't want to get I don't want to get into a whole long theological debate about what's right and wrong. But the truth of the matter is, is that communion is a a preaching of the gospel, and our response in going forward and receiving it. Is an expression and a profession that we have received that gospel. We believe Jesus Christ; He is our Savior, and I'm now going forward to recognize that in front of God and all of my family. Now, let me and what it, what should it do? If I'm living with sin that I've embraced, and I'm going before all the rest of my brothers and sisters and trying to pretend to be something that I'm not, what should it do? It should convict me and make me feel bad about what I'm doing. Well, I'm, I'm living a lie. And so it's an opportunity every week for us to profess our faith. It's an opportunity every week for the gospel to be preached and for the me- and for me to respond to that message. Now, what if uh, someone commits adultery? Okay. Yeah, and they know it's wrong. They knew they were wrong before they did it. They knew they were wrong when they did it. They knew it was wrong after they did it. And they go to their pastor to say, you know, I have done this. This is terrible. I'm is there much difference in that and going to the priest and giving confession? No. No, not much at all. Okay. But the difference in worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is the person that is truly sorry for what they have done will go to Christ with it and they will change. But if you go to your pastor and you have an exchange about that. There, and not only a pastor, but a brother in Christ. Right, okay. I can go to you as my brother in Christ and say, hey man, I'm really struggling with this, with this porn thing. You know, and you can, say, right. you can say, yeah, I did too. And this is what I've been doing to prevent myself from falling into that sin. Iron sharpens iron. Yes. We grow together. As Christ- and that yeah. would be the same thing as going to your pastor. Okay. A pastor or a priest is a very important person. Like, there's somebody that you should be able to go to and confide into. But when, the, when it becomes that that is the necessary step to get to God, you're in trouble. Well, because you have that. a high priest already, but and he's the one that we truly go to. Yes. So you mentioned every man, somebody struggled with lust. 
You said something that everybody's room is struggle with some kind of sin, thus? Yes, everybody struggles well, with sin. Well, the, the, the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. Yes. It's that saying that. So that means, like, you got to, I get, fine, I mean, fine. Marriage is undefiled. God designed God designed you with the desires that you have in you as a man. Not to be alone. God had the sexual desire within a man is a beautiful thing in God's eyes because God is the one that created us and put that desire but, in. But, us. Was, but that desire is to be expressed towards the one that we know in a covenant bond of marriage. God yeah. designed marriage to be between two people. Yeah, what, and if you go out and just have an affair with somebody who not, you're not, not married affair. to not an affair. I say like well, man to be alone. So God Adam, when he created Adam, he created a helper. It's not good for man to be alone. They got, they got married. Right. So, and, and that was actually one of the arguments. So when Rome, back in, in, like I think it was like 600 or 700, decided that the priests didn't need to be married anymore. That's crazy. <laughs> well, one of the arguments against that, one of the arguments that people, and this was the cat, this is the inner Catholic dialogue. This is, these are people that are Catholics. One of the arguments was, the Bible tells us not to abstain from marriage. Like, the Bible actually says that. Don't abstain from marriage. And not only that, the Bible teaches that a wife is not to uh, prevent her husband from being able to have relations with her. And a husband is not to prevent his wife from having her. Like, you don't use your sexuality as a tool to get what you want. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that you use to express your love towards one another. And it's the greatest physical intimacy that, but it's that God has to be given. Kept within the uh, framework, right? That's exactly right. And so, one of the things that you'll see, even in the the homosexual, the LGBTQ plus crowd, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that they focus on getting marriage legalized between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, is because without that stipulation of them being married. They're committing adultery. You see, they're having a sexual relationship outside of the marriage bond. So one of the ploys of the LGBTQ crowd is, hey, if we're married, we're not committing adultery. Well, what's the problem with that? You're satisfying one stipulation of the law, but God said he created male, male and female, female. And he specifically says that the that that's marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And he completely forbids uh, a man lying with a man, a woman lying with a woman. And and the LGBT crowd said, well, that was back in them times. But there are other sexual sins that he lists in those same verses. And it's necrophilia, which means what? Having sex with a dead person. Necrophilia. Yeah. yeah. Incest, having sex with family members, and bestiality. Having sex with animals. So he put all four, he lumped all of four to homosexuality with bestiality, incest, and necrophilia. And said, all of these things make me want to puke. They're all damnable offenses. And so to say, oh, well, that was in those times. Well, what you would have to do is open the floodgates up for necrophilia and bestiality and incest. See, God doesn't change. His attitude towards us doesn't change. But sex between a man and a woman. And if I go out and have an affair outside of marriage, I'm committing adultery. And the sad thing that I can tell you is I'm not preaching down on any of you because every day I commit adultery with my eyes. Well, I mean... Every day. So my suggestion is, see, like you're an established guy. I mean, like... um, I should get married. Why not? Yeah, we'll be fine. You find me a good Christian bride and I'll get married. But until then, but 
But the, the reality is, is that Paul says. But the reality is, Paul says he says it. He says if you if you if you're not married, if he says it's not good. Don't if you're not married, don't seek a wife. He said it's good because you can serve the kingdom. Don't seek a wife. He said he said in other words, if you're not married, you can serve God. And he says it to widows. He said if you're if she dies, don't seek another husband. You have the opportunity to serve God. So, now, he didn't say there was anything wrong with a widow getting remarried. But he says, he says, a man, if you're unmarried, don't seek to get married. If your woman's unmarried, don't seek to get married. Because once I get married, once I become in that covenant relationship with a wife, then I have to work on pleasing my wife. I can come teach these classes and, and pack up on an instant and go somewhere and preach or do anything I want to do and I don't have to answer to somebody other than God for what I'm doing. I have time to study. I get to put in four or five hours a day of reading and studying where if I had kids and a wife, you, you ain't going to have that time. You still can do that. This passes, this passes Man, I have a hard enough time keeping my dog and my cat world. happy this while I'm trying to study. This pastor does that all over the All right. Okay, let's get back into the text because we're never going to get finished. We never do, but let's get back into the text. All right. All right. So we got five minutes. Um, so verse 25, let's look at that again. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knocking on the door, Lord, Lord, open, and he'll say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we uh, ate and drank with you, uh, drank in your presence. Again, I immediately think of the communion table when I think of that. You went out and made this profession before everybody of who you were, and it was a lie. That's, that's what I see in that. And not only that, but when I see him shutting the door and saying, depart from me, I never knew you. Remember at the beginning of the class, I told you to think about Noah's Ark? Mm -hmm. Right? Once that door was sealed, and it said God sealed that door on Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and those, those animals. He sealed that door. And once that door was sealed, nobody was getting in. And people was banging on it, please let us in. But it was God who sealed that door. It was God's will that only those who trusted Him in faith entered in through that narrow door. Right? And, and you and I can think, we can immediately think in our heads, well, that's not fair. Fair would have been God destroying the whole earth. Noah and his family too. Well, He didn't, if, want, the, he didn't want to end the race. Right. The whole human race. Think about that. You can, and, and we'll end with this. We'll end with this and then next week we'll pick up the same subject. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, if God is so good, why does he send people to hell? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Yeah. Well, if it's God that you worship... So evil, right? don't belong in heaven. Right? But don't say it like that. So I heard people say like that. I heard, I heard what, my friend said long, what my friend said a long time ago, God created us. So why would you say something he created? He called us babies. Why would, you, why would you do something like that to us? That's right. what my if he's said. so loving, if he's so kind, why would he send anybody to hell? And not only that, like he's going to let them burn forever because of something that they did that only took 10 minutes. But so much for your question. Right? So the reality is not the question is not if God is so good, why does He destroy people? The question for us should be if God is so holy and just. What do I mean when I say He's just? Right. Figure. He always does what is right. right. If God is just and right, why does He allow anybody into heaven? Mm. Because only Jesus, He's the only one in heaven today that deserves to be there. 
Not one son of Adam, not one daughter of Eve that's in heaven today deserves to be there. If we got what we deserved, we would all go to hell. So the question is not, if God is so good, why does He send people to hell? The question for us should be, if God is so just, why did He forgive me and save me? Well, He has to have righteousness. Yeah. It comes down to good. punishment deserves... Good. And that's where the answer comes in. If God is so just, why didn't He send me to hell? And the answer is, is because He poured the justice that I deserve on His Son. And He took the death that I deserve so that I could have a life that I could never earn. But living up to that expectation of being that much devoted to Christ is a big, big if, if, door. If we, do it in our, door if, if we do it in our power, we'll never do it. Right. But see, Jesus died on the cross to save a people. He sent His Spirit down here to seal and confirm those people. And if He has changed your heart, if He's regenerated your heart, if He's saved you, then His Holy Spirit, the, the same promise that gives you eternity is the same promise that said, I will conform you to the image of My Son. Amen. It might take your whole life and it will continue on into eternity, but you will become Christ-like. That's, and we that's come, the hard part. We come me. kicking and screaming. That's yeah. the hard part. Because that's right. You know why? Because we want to do it. Oh yeah. And we know how hard it is to study our Bibles. We know how hard it is to take ten minutes aside and pray. We know how hard it is to to think good thoughts. We we know all of those things. But what we're doing when we do that day is we're clinging to us and not what He's done for us. Human nature. Right. So I'll finish with this verse and we'll close with prayer. Not a verse, but lines to a, a song. Uh, and we'll finish with prayer. There's a, a hymn. I don't even remember what the hymn is now. Uh, but it says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? I don't have anything to offer. I'm going to grasp the cross and receive what He has to offer me. Amen? Alright, Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this class. Thank you for a chance uh, for iron to sharpen iron. Thank you for working in our hearts today and allowing us to see your beauty and your love and your grace and your mercy more and more. Um, I pray. Uh, I pray today for the few that are here. I pray for the, the many who are yet to hear your truth. I pray for those who will come to know you in the coming days. Uh, And I pray that you will give us the strength and the willingness to share this gospel with others so that they might know you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.